Hello and welcome to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. Today we shall be going to infinity and beyond in a galaxy far, far away. Yes, that's right, film fans. Get ready for my podcast on the science fiction genre. And obviously, I did just quote Toy Story just a little bit there, uh, but we're not going to be talking about that today. Purely, it's for my real lack of comedic timing that I felt I'd put that in there. And uh, we'll just see how this podcast goes, shall we? Um, First of all, before I continue to tell you all about my favourite top picks for the science fiction genre, I would just like to quickly add, I am on Twitter via uh, the official Take 97, a film podcast Twitter account. If you'd like to give that a follow, and then you'd be able to keep up to date with all the latest podcasts that are coming online, and also any related questions you want to tweet me if you want to get involved. So just tweet me any questions you want answered, or if you want to provide any opinions or get a shout-out on the podcast in future seasons, be my guest. Uh, It is at Take97Podcast. You should be able to find it on Twitter. It's there. And... I'll be tweeting once in a while to keep you up to date with all the podcasts and maybe answering some questions along the way too. But that is just my little bit of self-promotion done. And if you have any opinions on any of the films today, get in, get in touch and I will oblige you through the account. Um, but first of all, I'm going to start you off with just a bit of insight into science fiction. Um, obviously, I'm not a film historian, like, in the professional sense, but I do know a little bit about the history of film in some respects, so there is one film in particular that if you're a real hardcore, you want to get into your films, or you're into your films, and you have seen it, or you haven't seen it, um, there's a Fritz Lang film from the 1920s called Metropolis, which, if you look at some films, it's really had a big impact on, like, where they go in terms of their production design mostly and just the general aesthetic and the look of a science fiction film in particular i know we discussed film noir before uh in a neo-noir film called dark city the look of the actual city the locations in the film is very much based on metropolis and the same can be said for the ridley scott film blade runner in 1982 um, but we'll get to that a bit later. Uh, but as you you know, there's lots of influences that that film, which some argue is one of the one of the original films that started off science fiction uh, in the traditional sense, then where science was being created for an entertainment based uh, medium uh, and various other reasons that I can probably think of, but not right now. Um, it's very much sort of the godfather, as it were, one of. Yeah, there's there's many other like smaller silent films as well that probably paved the that have paved the way, um, for the films that we see and love today in the science fiction realm. But the film that I'm going to start you off with that I will recommend first of all, is a film from 1968, directed by Mr. Stanley Kubrick, uh, the legend that is Mr. Stanley Kubrick, and he, he is just, I mean, he's I lots of people like him, for various reasons. Some people don't like this film that I'm going to mention now. Most people who love the science fiction genre owe it a great debt because, like I said, Metropolis was like the beginning of the science fiction genre in the early, early days. But this one really kicked off all your, the rest of them. Because without 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is the film I'm talking about, you wouldn't have Star Wars, you wouldn't have Star Trek. You probably wouldn't even have um, TV series like Doctor Who or even the 
the giant that is Stranger Things that's on Netflix right now, you wouldn't have any of the current modern day science fiction programs that we have and enjoy to this day without 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, that's just to sell it just a little bit in terms of its legacy. Uh, but just to tell you what it's about, um, well, it's kind of about a couple of things, really. We explore, so we see the beginning of mankind um, in the form of uh, primates, at the be beginning of the dawn of man, as it's known in the film. And we see how man evolves uh, and sort of gains intelligence then, through a mysterious black monolith, so a rectangular shaped monolith, which even to this day no one really knows what it's meant to be. I mean, there are lots and lots of theories going surrounding it, including those who have read the book, the novelization of the film, uh, which was the original sort of basis of what this film was. It was going to be a book, then it became a film, and then it was made into a book by the author Arthur C. Clarke. And it's just, so it follows the dawn of man, and this black monolith follows throughout the entire narrative. And the majority of the film is centred around a space exploration in the year 2001, obviously, because 2001 is Space Odyssey. But the we follow a pair of astronauts who are on a discovery, a mission on the SS Discovery, on the way to see... Uh, uh, find out really the meaning and the origin of these black monoliths which are popping up everywhere um, because there is a black monolith discovered on the moon and by a small research team and then later on these two astronauts including um, a character called Dave Bowman who actually goes the whole hog and discovers something on the other side of Jupiter. Now what I really really uh, want to stress here is I can't tell you too much because I feel 2001 A Space Odyssey is it's a film you have to experience yourself. And I can tell you what the story is, but you wouldn't enjoy it as much. And I will probably say my highlight from this film is the special effects. Because they constructed various different mechanisms and gadgetry gizmos that, that you know, would probably are probably really com comparatively very simple and basic by today's standards, but I do feel that they really set a precedent for what the potential of science fiction could do, and especially, you know, in terms of, a lot of it was just photo trickery, so, you know, through the editing of the film, and, you know, and exposing, exposure of different rates using colour and various other elements of the film, so not only did you have, if you've seen the film, or if you're going to watch the film, um, there's the sequence in which you have Dave Bowman and his fellow astronaut companion and running around what looks like a circular, like, dome-like structure. And it's... There's a technical term for it, but I cannot think of it right now. But the point is, he's running around it, and they actually purposely built it so that it's like a giant hamster wheel. So it went, it goes around and the actors inside could run around and it was as if that they were running around with a sense of gravity in a spaceship. And obviously the camera just followed around on a steady cam. Uh, as, well, kind of a steady cam in a, some early form of it before it actually really came about in The Shining, the steady cam specifically. But that's something I can get to in another time. But the point is, 
there was, you know, this very grand looking, the grand looking sets, the spaceships, um, the model work was amazing. It's really, really good for its time. And then the photo effects, like I just said, very 60s, very psychedelic. And lots of people, it's been famously known, maybe off, like offhandedly quoted, that it was the greatest trip that you could go to see at the cinema. And lots of young people allegedly went to see it just to trip out, as it were, um, and go and experience a massive like psychedelic drug fueled <laughs> moment uh for about two and a half hours and you know taking all that you know hearsay aside it's a brilliant feat and there's some great moments where they literally just shoot over like quarries reservoirs and mountain ranges and they just turn it a different color so like greens blues and they're really really uh, truly a feat of art really because Although, you know, you could try and make a fake set that looks like a, an alien planet, they used the ordinary and made it look extraordinary. And the same goes for the exposure um, technique, which I don't think it has a name. If anyone does know, remind me. But, I, you know, I just see it as the, the biggest statement in terms of science fiction filmmaking is the Starfield sequence uh, before Dave Bowman finds out the ultimate secret which I shall not tell you more about because obviously it's a very ambiguous film 2001 you can make your mind up about what it all means and if you think it means what you think it means it's a very mind-bending film um but the starfield sequence it's very psychedelic like I said it's probably the bit that got people talking the most because it's very very strange it's very psychedelic full of color and it's just trippy but it's brilliant and that kind of inspires the the space sequences that we see today, such as like, you know, space fights and stuff like that, you know, what what can you do after that? And it really set the precedent for the likes of George Lucas and the Star Wars films. And it's just a brilliant film. So I recommend that highly. And also it's got the best villain in it, or at least I'd say villain, and the best computer character, the HAL, so H-A-L, 9000 series computer who is just voiced brilliantly. He 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 he's just so in a way monotone, but also he has like some charisma in a very strange way. And you just have to watch the film to understand what Hal is to the film and the look of Hal. So if you've seen a picture of him or you know of Hal or you recognize it, it's the the circular lens with a red led or red light bulb in the back and it's just very terrifying but at the same time very strange because he talks very posh and respectfully to his human counterpart on the ship that he's embedded into but then at the same time you know it's a descent into madness it's a descent into what's going on here so highly recommend 2001 a space odyssey i watched that that's my breakdown for that film um but like I just said, in terms of science fiction, we can't talk about science fiction and not talk about Star Wars. Star Wars, it's a series, I won't go into too much detail now because I could do a whole podcast debate on it and I might even do that. But Star Wars is very much a juggernaut of the blockbuster big screen experience for science fiction. If you, As soon as people say science fiction, to me, nine times out of ten, I think of Star Wars. That's one of the first ones that I go to one of the initial things that I think of. And when I say think of Star Wars, I am one of the people that thinks of the original trilogy first. Um, so that would be 
Star Wars or Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, as it was later known, and then obviously Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Those three, those three films for me are just the standard for the Star Wars universe. Then you get the prequels, which come along in the two foul in the early, the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, the less said about some of them, the better, to be honest. Um, <laughs> my personal opinion. I'm going to be controversial and say, obviously, when I was younger and I watched them. I, I I didn't really take in uh, Attack of the Clones. Uh, I didn't really realise how long it was until I watched it again when I was older and I realised how long and really drawn out it was. And that's just a general pacing issue with the film, really, unfortunately. So I wouldn't recommend that one unless you really want to see what it is and you've never seen it before. But for those of you Star Wars fans out there, you'll probably agree the Attack of the Clones is by no means the per- most perfect Star Wars film. It's not even close. Um... And I, when I was, so like I was saying, as I was younger, I enjoyed Revenge of the Sith. Obviously, now looking back on that, that was a very rookie mistake. And I appreciate the original trilogy a lot more. And yeah, I enjoyed in the new sequel trilogy, The Force Awakens. Um, but to be honest, as a friend of mine pointed out, it's pretty much a new hope, just with a few different faces in it. Um, the story, it's just a new hope. Uh, the original Star Wars film from 1977, but, I, you know, I, I enjoyed it, I thought it was alright, but at the end of the day, I'll let you guys discuss that, let me know your thoughts, if there's any Star Wars fans out there, I'm sure they're gonna want to message and tweet me and let me know their thoughts on it, very strong feelings, I'm sure, um, but, you know, I enjoy the original trilogy, highly recommend those, if you want to watch all of them, by all means, watch the whole Skywalker saga, uh, saga, including, um, the spin-off ones as well, I would highly recommend Rogue One if you're really into your Star Wars, or even if you're not, watch Rogue One, and it really it's really good because it connects to the Star Wars original trilogy as a as a proper prequel. Really, the prequel that we deserve, not the prequels that we got in Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and so forth. It really, really is. It's a brilliant film, and it's got a diverse cast. It's got a very you know, a good pace, good motivations for the characters, really good action sequences, very well shot. It was just brilliant. And um, I recommend that one above the prequels, honestly. So if you want to watch Star Wars, but you don't, you feel a bit deterred by mine or anyone else's comments about the prequels, then um, watch the original trilogy, the original three, uh, and maybe watch Rogue One as well, because those are good. And then if you feel like it, delve into the sequel trilogy and possibly Solo if you want to give it a chance. I actually quite like Solo, but, you know, unpopular opinion. Um, moving on to other um, sci-fi ones that I, films that I really enjoy. Um, going back in time a little bit before um, Star Wars and the whole saga that is George Lucas's brainchild is the classic Forbidden Planet. It's a film from 1956 uh, starring Walter Pigeon, Anne Francis and Leslie Nielsen. And let, let's let's just say it's it's very much a product of its time. It was the 50s trying to do the future. And it's a little bit like what happened with The Man Who Fell to Earth, the, the film with David Bowie, the Nick Rogue film with David Bowie in it, which is another one I would say, if you're in a weird kind of mood, like it's not 2001 A Space Odyssey trippy, but it's very interesting in the sense that it's got some very stylized sexual violence and stuff in there and 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 I wouldn't say it was like yeah I wouldn't say it was gratuitous in some respects but at the same time I would see 
say it was very unnecessary in parts and but if you're interested in like all sorts of sci-fi like b-movie sci-fi or just really alternative sci-fi then watch the man who fell to earth um that's a 70s film that's a equally strange film but then again that's what science fiction is all about it's going into the unknown and i genuinely think that when we think back to forbidden planet in an age where you know it's it's very much classic science fiction that you get from forbidden planet you've got a robot which is meant to be really futuristic and looking back on it he's got a very he's robbie the robot for those of you who know um forbidden planet 1956 film Robbie the Robot is very much a product of his time, and he even appeared and made some guest stars uh, appearances on uh, like various... I think there's an episode of the television series, um, The Thin Man, and I, I, I've forgotten what... I think it's called The Robot Client. It's actually an episode that's based around um, Robbie the Robot and the fact that he's involved in it. And he did, there's loads of adverts, apparently, and appearances he made because despite the fact that Robbie the Robot is actually in it for the least amount of time and plays the probably the least um, important role within the film overall, because it's mainly about the two factions of people. Uh, so the people who live on the planet, the Forbidden Planet, and the space exploration team uh, that go to check on it. Robbie the Robot is the one that character, you should say, really, if he is a character, if you deem him as a crucial character, as a standout role in the science fiction, like, canon. So, you know, you have, in terms of, you have Doctor Who's TARDIS, uh, you've got R2-D2 and C-3PO, and, you know, Darth Vader, all those ones from Star Wars, uh, you, you've got Hal from 2001, for Forbidden Planet, you get Robbie the Robot. And I think Robbie the Robot, again, like I said, for 2001, 2001 set a precedent for lots of science fiction films to come but i feel robbie the robot really paved the way for robot companions in sci-fi based content uh be it television or film uh so i think you know you have robbie the robot to thank for hal you have robbie the robot to thank for k9 and doctor who you have robbie the robot to thank for c3po r2d2 and all the droids in the star wars universe and Quite frankly, I can understand the appeal because he's very... The way they designed him, he's he's a big, giant, tall um, robot with arms that can't really move. But they're, you know, they're, they're good for, like, I don't know, picking things up and just gr with grabbers on them. Like, mid-hand. They're, they're hands, but, you know, they're, they're a bit stiff and awkward. Uh, and he couldn't bend down because he just sort of talks tick-tocks from side to side as it were um and he's very much the antithesis of your stereotypical 50s robot and a lot more followed after him but he really set the precedent for all the ones that followed on um and forbidden planet is very it's got that it's not b-movie but it's very and it's not joyful either but it's also not dark and cynical it's just genuine escapism and fun in the sense, if you watch it just for what it is, uh, it's not brilliant, but it is the 50s and it's held up a little bit by the fact that they tried to make it a little bit more detached from Earth because it's set on another planet. But I recommend Forbidden Planet as an early starter, along with a trip to Metropolis, and then obviously make your way through the rest of the catalogue. Um, so 2001 Space Odyssey, Star Wars, they're all great. Um, another one I would recommend 
uh, film that I would highly recommend is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is a Steven Spielberg movie. And quite frankly, and it's from 1977. And it's just, I watched it not long. I think it was last year I watched it. And considering the majority of the film is based around the humans and it's set on Earth and there's not much alien intervention, you'd think, why is this a sci-fi film? You know, there's only, like, you could count the amount of instances of alien, like, serious alien activity in on maybe one or even over to two hands. Um, but it's very much rooted in sci-fi because it's all about humans discovering the unknown which at the end of the day is what 2001 a space odyssey did it's humans uncovering the unknown and obviously i I will just quickly touch on the point there is a film called 2010 the year we make contact from 1984 um which is the sequel to 2001 a space odyssey not directed by stanley kubrick because he didn't want to do another film but i do feel it's worth a watch. It's a very interesting film. Um, again, it's based on Arthur C. Clarke's um, sequel. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke had involvement in the concept of the film. And it again, it explores that humans uncovering the unknown. And that is what Close Encounters of the Third Kind does. So, you know, science fiction, I would sum up, science fiction, pure science fiction films, I would sum them up saying that most of them or at least 50% of them, deal with humans uncovering something completely unknown to them. So 2001 A Space Odyssey and the sequel 2010. Um, obviously, it's not as good as 2001, but I'll let you decide on that. Let me know. But the it's very much about discovering the meaning of life and existence. And although it's not as deep and as ambiguous, and 2010 answers 2001 A Space Odyssey's questions you do get that sense of the universe is a bigger entity there's more to it than we understand at this current point in time and coming back to close encounters of, of the third kind that is what it does and also you know i'm not going to spoil it i'm going to let you watch it but by the end of the film you really do realize that you know it's not like a f- a threat of an alien invasion that's not what we're trying to get here it's literally humans making contact and acknowledging the wider existence of, you know, bigger and better technologies and races beyond our own. And, you know, that's probably something that a scientist would say. And, you know, I've probably said several things that are completely wrong, but that's what I take from it. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, iconic scene right at the end where the alien ship plays music in reply to... It's kind of like the Morse code, so... The scientists are playing Morse code uh, through like a synthesizer kind of machine. And they, the aliens, this big massive alien ship, which if you've seen it, it's an iconic image, replies back with basically repeating it. It's a little bit like when you teach, when you teach a young child how to, how to play something and you're saying, look, just repeat after me. That's essentially what it is. And that it's a trying to initiate an understanding and I feel that's the next, in moving on from that, an under, a human understanding of aliens and, you know, just trying to admit, you know, they're just the same as us in most respects and, you know, trying to find some common ground. I feel a film I should really mention is another Steven Spielberg film, uh, E.T., uh, Extraterrestrial. 
and it's just uh, that is really that's the other end so so far you know 2001 is very ambiguous and it's very you know it's for adults to you know think about wider meanings of life uh, and so is Close Encounters in a way apart from the fact that there's lots of Steven Spielberg like characters popped in between to you know really make it enjoyable for an audience but in terms of tone those are quite more adult in some respects whereas E.T. the Extraterrestrial is a family film and that's where you that's where the likes of Stranger Things from Netflix that's where they've got in part some of their inspiration uh some of their inspiration for you know the kids in Stranger Things uh very much rooted in that in the you know we see a boy and, and a whole group of kids becoming friends with an alien who just wants to go home and you know you've got the interfering government scientists and it's that culture clash it's a sense of introducing the alien to the what seems familiar at first to you at home the viewer and the humans in the film but to the alien it's completely new and it's fascinating and I guess it's a case of self-reflection in that respect as well because self-reflection in science fiction science fiction usually is a lot of science fiction films or you know some of the best ones are quite allegorical because they look at us as a species as you know people and what we really think about the world and because you know the messages in say for instance the man who fell to earth david bowie's uh, man who fell to earth he literally comes to the earth to warn people about future dangers he comes to like help himself because he needs help for his own planet but he also in effect trying to instigate tries to instigate change within the human environment to say you're doing something wrong you need to stop and you need to think about your actions that what you're doing is wrong and what you're going forward into could be catastrophic it's the same for 2001 a space odyssey because of the idea of the star child and it being very much a you know a protector of the earth and saying we've got to change something something's going wrong that kind of thing we need to take a good hard look at ourselves and you know that's what et does in a family friendly way because et suggests that you know there's the kids are actually probably more intelligent than the adults in terms of understanding how to care about alien life people from another planet and then you can think about relations between countries and how it how the film speaks to that and how we can all get along into a very harmonious peaceful way so while science fiction might seem like aliens and shooting people all the time and blowing things up in outer space and you know just having fun with it there are a lot of serious messages behind these kind of films and on that note i would just like to give a couple of honourable mentions for some relaxed sci-fi films, shall we say. Um, so there's two films in particular. One I don't think has aged well because of, well, I say two, two of them because of a certain depiction haven't aged 100% well in terms of representation. But in terms of comedy value on the science fiction part, there's the short circuit films. So there's short circuit and short circuit two. I, think, I believe Short Circuit 2 is the one that most people feel is the one that they don't really agree with the representation of. But I I think it's quite interesting to look at in terms of how far we've cut, like the differences in how sophisticated science fiction can be. And whilst you get something like a, 
a, wa- a well, not walking, talking, but a rolling, talking robot with a lot of charisma, just like C-3PO and the likes of R2-D2, even though he doesn't actually speak. Uh, it's very interesting to see. And, yeah, so watch those if you want to. Those are quite easygoing sci-fi films. Um, the other one I would like to point out is the, and I couldn't do this podcast without mentioning it, is the Alien franchise. Now, the Alien franchise is very much... It's it, it's a love-hate relationship I have with it, and I know some other people do, but I love the... The first one is... that So, Alien, back from 1979 is the one that really starts it all and it's perfectly perfectly executed the Ridley Scott film and it's just it's got Sigourney Weaver in an iconic role as Ellen Ripley the original female empowering woman character that we get in it and she's very much the staple so you know you get Lara Croft you've got all these other future characters that came after her but I feel I feel for me Ripley is the best character in the series of strong female characters and in terms of Alien Alien is a brilliant film it's it's a horror film in space a horror film in space which you it, it literally was pitched as no one in space can hear you scream or a haunted house in space that's literally it and the, obviously the tagline was no one can hear you scream in space it's just brilliantly paced and brilliantly delivered. And I don't normally say this about some sequels. A lot of the time I have a weird obsession and interest in the fact that the third film, in some cases, is one of my favourite ones. It's not always the case, I just want to stress that. But the second film in this one, Aliens, now that one is a film that I would highly recommend to you. It's a brilliant film really shows off Sigourney Weaver's Ripley, Ellen Ripley, and it's brilliant. And I just can't stress how much it's a real pivotal moment in the science fiction canon. So you get all the philosophical meaning of life films, such as uh, 2001, 2010. You've got the light-hearted ones and, you know, fighting in space and, you know, representations of intergalactic conflicts. So you've got um, Star Wars, you've got ones that represent social issues like The Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, you've got comedy from short circuit films, uh, but Aliens really is a fun-filled, I mean, people get killed in it, but so that's not fun, but it's a real fun-filled set of films. They go off the rails uh, after a while, but I'd highly recommend Alien and then Aliens, literally the most inventive title ever. I was having a discussion with a friend of mine the other day, and we were saying how to suggest a sequel, literally all they did was put an S on the end of Alien as their initial original pitch before they went into saying what they could do next in the story. And also for me, as I like cats, it's got the cutest cat in it. <laughs> a little ginger cat, which is so adorable. And you wouldn't think you'd say that about a science fiction horror film. And as I said before, on the end of the last podcast... You can hybridise these films a lot because, you know, Alien is a horror film in space. And that's, you know, such a weird combination. But it also, when it came out, it just worked. And watching it back is a brilliant example of how you can mix the genres and really convey a good sense of adventure, action and tension in two hours. And 
for that one, I'm just going to leave you with that. Um, other examples, I would say Back to the Future, using time travel. It's a whole other can of worms that I won't get into right now, but Back to the Future is a brilliant comedy with time travel, and you just can't go wrong. Marty McFly, if you haven't seen it, watch it. Um, but I will leave you with that, really, after this episode of the podcast. Um, <clears throat> tweet me. And let me know what you think of these films. Is there any films I missed off? Is there any films that you think I could talk about a little bit more in detail? Um, I would also actually say, um, before we conclude this, Blade Runner. Blade Runner 2049 is a good one in terms of being a modern film and different director. But watch the original Blade Runner if you liked uh, anything on my last podcast about film noir. And also if you like science fiction in general about robots and androids it's very very interesting again it's very philosoph uh, philosophical but it's very very interesting to watch and visually it's another ridley scott amazer it's brilliant and i would really encourage you to watch any of these just search science fiction see what you like see what you want to watch and enjoy it and that's what i'm going to say for the end of this podcast guys so uh um next episode is going to be a bumper interview special I'll let you find out who that's with when you tune into the podcast next time. Before we finish the podcast, though, I'd just like to point out I did a poll on my Insta on the Take 97 Instagram. And I, if you didn't see the results already earlier in the week, then uh, here's the chance to catch up on it. So I pitted Empire Strikes Back. So Star Wars Episode 5, uh, 1980 film uh, up against the 1986 sequel aliens so sequel to the original alien film and the winner was empire strikes back with a humongous 67 percent and 33 percent of you enjoyed alien and thought that was the better film of the two but i, I say that very loosely because of the fact that everybody i had lots of messages saying how dare you make me choose between those two um but it's a great uh, opportunity to point out that it's the 40th anniversary this year in 2020 of Empire Strikes Back since the original um, theatrical release of it. Uh, and lots of various cinema chains, I know, because they're reopening at the moment and some that are already open, the very few anyway, um, they are showing Empire Strikes Back as part of their uh, big screen revival, as it were. And obviously it's the 40th anniversary, so it's a great opportunity. I really want to go and see it. Um Hopefully I'm going to go and get to see that on a big screen near me. But I would, you know, if you are going to go and see it, are you going to watch Empire Strikes Back on the big screen when it when cinemas reopen uh, in a cinema near you? Let me know. Tweet me and let us know on Take 97 podcast if there's anything else that you're going to see when cinemas open uh, and any other sci-fi favourites. But for now, that's all I'm going to say and wrap up the podcast. That's a wrap on Take 97, the sci-fi episode. And I've been David Ingram, and I'll um, see you later, guys. Bye.